I need this to be smaller on my head. My head's not that big. Were the headphones this should, big last week? I don't know. Should I compliment you or something? You know, to help fill it up? <gasps> yeah. That would be awesome. Make my head bigger? You're the best friend ever. But the problem is it's not. it might not make your head bigger because it's truth, so it might just, like, stay. My headphones are still falling off. Because it's truth. <laughs> okay, let's try this again. Welcome to So Psychological, the podcast where two friends investigate the world of psych. All the analysis, none of the professionalism. Welcome to So Psychological. I'm Lizzie Blake, and this is my co-host, Apricot Agatha Christie. Are you saying there's a stone where my heart should be? <laughs> and, and this is my co-host, Applesauce Agatha Christie. Ooh, is that because I'm so saucy? Mushy. Mm, anyway, so <laughs> yeah. today we're going to be talking about season one, episode eight, which is Sean versus the Red Phantom. So shall we go into a summary? Absolutely. In 1985, little Sean is running around pretending to be a superhero, and Henry is none too pleased. Back in the present, Chief Vic and Carlton are away for a seminar, leaving Juliet to handle a missing persons case. Juliet enlists Sean's help because technically the police can't help for 48 hours. Is that a real rule? Made-for-TV rule. Uh. The missing person is an 18-year-old named Malone Brayfogle. Sean and Gus investigate at Malone's home and find wads of cash hidden in the light fixture, and Gus finds directions to the convention center where the Tricon is being held. They head towards the Tricon, and to get inside, Sean and Gus pretend to be George Takei's assistant. Once inside, they meet executives for the new movie, The Red Phantom, which Gus says has been given a poor review by The Malcontent, a website that reviews movies based on comic books. We're also given an opportunity to meet Gus's alter ego, Magic Head. Love Magic Head. Love Magic Head. When it seems Malone, as the malcontent, was paid to write a good review for the Red Phantom, but then has not lived up to his end of the bargain, Sean and Gus suspect the Paristone executives. That is, until they go missing. Meanwhile, Chief Vic's water breaks, causing Carlton to rush her to the hospital and stand in as her birthing coach. While, of course, keeping his eyes north of the equator. Back at the con, Gus realizes that what is happening seems to be very similar to a Green Spirit comic storyline. And that the clues being left behind look like the same clues in the comic book. Sean pieces together the clues to realize the creator of the Green Spirit, Cooler, is the mastermind behind the disappearances of the two executives and Malone. The Tricon was the perfect opportunity for Cooler to destroy all of the people he felt had destroyed his comic. The police arrest Cooler and rescue the three missing persons under the stage who were strapped to explosives. The episode wraps up with Sean, Gus, Jules, and Lassie admiring Chief Vic's new daughter and encouraging her to maybe take some time off. Like maybe till January. Maybe till January. All right, Susie. So we talk so much about character development but there's an interesting aspect to characters and their development in this episode that I mm -hmm. really wanted to focus on. 
because this episode is really the first one we see where instead of just references, we're really getting a whole picture of references brought together, pulled in like a whole homage almost. Mm -hmm. It's not quite a direct homage like we eventually see, but it is a full and complete homage to the comic book world, fandoms, superheroes, and things like this. Yes. All of that. And they do such a great job of just pulling it all together in so many ways. And uh, one of the things that we know about characters in that world is that they all have secret identities. Alter egos. Right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about secret identities because we have some of that happening in this episode. We absolutely do. So I wanted to start first with the most obvious, straight off the bat, our victim. The the very crime that Sean and Gus are called in to solve. Malone Brayfogel. Malone Brayfogel, who has a secret identity. The malcontent. The malcontent. Right. So here we have this teenager. He is just, you know, this, this kid in high school who loves the world of comic books. He loves the movies and the different things attached to them. And he has created a blog and this blog he has under his alter ego, the malcontent. And that's like his two identities. And one is like, you know, instead of just being the normal kid who's hanging out with his friends and doing all these different things, the malcontent is a very knowledgeable, insightful person who can make or break a whole movie Mm -hmm. a whole uh series i mean he just has a lot of impact so much so that producers have come and contacted him he's even making a lot of money because of it yeah clearly so my my interest so often is like what what's the motivator behind creating right an alter ego and with malone you know it's so interesting because I'm I'm thinking this is kind of at the beginning when blogs were a thing. This is kind yeah. of at the beginning when people at home could just write something up and share it with the world. And, right. and so like there's a part of me that's wondering if he's doing an alter ego as like an appeal to authority that maybe he thinks people aren't gonna gonna see the insights of a high school kid as somebody who should be able to make or break a movie or a franchise or a series. But obviously he's, he's very, very skilled at what he does. Right. I mean, who's going to follow Malone Brayfogel's daily blog, whereas the malcontent who posts nothing but comic and media related content gets notoriety. Yeah. And it's and it's taken for its worth based on its content. Yeah, and I think I think like in today's media, if Malone Brayfogel, a high school student, had really great content, people would follow it. Right. But at the beginning, you know, like this kid, he doesn't he doesn't have like a degree or a master's in philosophy or or how stories shape our lives or you know all of these things, which are the things that that at that point in time we might have thought would be required for somebody to be able to be a very effective critic critic blogger for this type of thing. Right. Because this would have been at the beginning of that era. So it wasn't like a normal thing to be a social influencer. Yeah. People were just putting things out there wondering, 
if somebody was reading them. And then all of a sudden things started happening. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, I think, you know, he's got this appeal to a very niche crowd. Yes. But it's like, I, so part of it, I think, would be to be taken seriously. So they're not just looking at it. So the people that he cares about who yes. are reading it aren't looking at him as just a teenage as just kid. A kid. Yep. But that he has some authority. There's also the protection of his own identity from all the people that he wouldn't want, the people who would be oh. often making fun of the people who care about that world. Yeah, that's Because at that true. time, like if I think back to my high school experience, you know, like I didn't know a lot about comic books or superheroes and stuff. It was really the friend group I was in. They loved that and they drew me into that. And it has, you know, it's it shaped part of who I am and a lot of the the things I love in, in my interest in pop culture and media, mm -hmm. right? But, you know, everybody in high school is a target for some, some by somebody else for some reason. Yes, it definitely seems that way. And, you know, those kids who are drawn to those comic books at that time, they often were. And so in some ways, while he's wanting to gain uh, attention from those who would appreciate this and be taken seriously, part of it, too, would be to protect himself, his high school self, from those who would use it against him. Yeah. You know, and so it makes sense why a teenage kid would then have this alter ego. And of course, then that becomes a clue with the letters from Malone and Malcontent that overlap mm -hmm. that Sean uses to discover this secret identity. Yeah. All right. So another one I'd like to look at is Hilt's Cooler. Now he is our main villain. So if we're talking about the crime, we have the victim Malone. Malone. And now we have the criminal Hilt's Cooler. And now his is interesting because we really see development happen. But this is where I think it's so beautifully written. We see it develop in the same way that traditional comic book story villains develop. Oh, absolutely. And so I love it because here he is. He's just a guy who's gone through some major upsets in his career and in his life. He's a creative type. You know, he is a creator. And I mean, I think it's interesting because what I've learned about the comic book world, you know, even there are different people who write the story, the artists who draw it, even down to different people who are the letterers and the inkers even. There's a lot of people involved and they all bring their creative skills. But I mean, from this, it seems like he's done the whole thing. He is the creative force behind the green spirit. Mm -hmm. This is his baby. Um, and he's done the whole thing. And yet he's faced these major upsets in life. Now we know from the comic book world and from the many uh, Batman references that we see throughout the show. Where, so I'll, <laughs> yes. I'll probably go ahead and reference Batman as well. Major incidents can affect a person's choices. We saw the major tragedy of Bruce Wayne as a child, mm -hmm. and it created the Batman. It, yeah, it drove him to be the dark who hero. He is, yes, right. Well, the major incidents and tragedy of falling into a vat of acid created the Joker. The Joker, and then he, the choices he made after, of course, as well. I'm speaking specifically to the storyline from the Michael Keaton. Uh, Jack Nicholson Batman movie. Yes. There are so many different iterations out there, but I'm going to reference that one specifically. But, uh, you know, it's like this, they both experienced tragedy and upset, but the choices they made directed them in different paths. And it's so interesting because Hilt's cooler here, 
in some ways you would think it would direct him to become a great hero because that is what he created. The green spirit was a hero. Mm -hmm. It's what he valued the most. This was his thing that he loved, that he created, that he protected, that he valued. And yet his upsets caused him to become the great villain. Yeah. That's, that's such an interesting point. Cause once again, I'm drawn to like, why, why did he make the choices? But he really does seem to feel like Malone and the Paristone executives destroyed the green spirit. So does it maybe almost feel like he felt like he had no other, no other character to jump into? Oh, interesting. Like they destroyed the green spirit. Like the green spirit is so dead. So the only one that survived is the villain. Is the villain. And so now I'm going to jump into this villain role from a story that I have created and live it out. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. And, but he's having to hide. Like he's he's still he's still at the Comic-Con signing as he'll Yes. Taylor. Well, but that looks to me like that looks like that. Like that's his facade. It's like that's. Like he's pretending to be Hilt Cooler. Right. Like as if everything's okay. He's not upset. That's just the way things go in this industry. Like he's just, he's put on this facade of what would quote unquote be his real identity. And kind of like, okay, to reference back to the film I was talking about, you know, there's a great scene where Jack Nicholson's Joker has worn makeup to make his face yes. look still like like fleshy. So yeah, so Jack Nicholson looks like just a, a normal a normal ish person. Yes. <laughs> and then he goes and he wipes and then it's like the real joker underneath. Yes. So that's like Hilt Schooler here. So then Hilt Schooler becomes the that's interesting. I like that. And yeah, I agree with that analogy. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to watch because then he even the way he commits the crimes is he's following his pattern that he laid out in the comic book and uh again that's part of how sean is able to capture him and so i although i gotta say i gotta say if you know that you have a distinctive flair in your writing why do you put it in your notes when you're committing crimes Right? I know. You would think. You would think. You would think. The last one I want to talk about, of course, is the biggest. Of course, we have Sean and Gus. And they're living some dual lives as well. Oh, very much so, yes. Because here we have Sean, who is Sean, psychic detective. Who is not psychic. Who is not psychic. And actually, so he has his secret is held by a few. Uh Uh-huh. You know, Gus and Henry have to hold that secret identity very closely and protect him, you know. And so he's living the Sean that is just a Sean trying to muddle through life. And it is interesting because you mentioned how, you know, the motivation behind these guys. Yes. And they had like actual like, you know, if we talk about Malone, you know, he he wanted to be heard. He had some things to say. And, you know, Hiltz, he had tragedy or, or upsets happen want, in his he, life. He wanted vengeance. Let's talk about Sean. How did he develop his great he character? He wanted to save his butt. His cabina was on the line when Chief Vic was like, are you lying? When before that, when Lassie was like, we think you're in on it. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so what does he do? He creates a, a psychic detective agency and... Gives us a show forever that we love. But um, 
that creates eight seasons and so far three movies. Hopefully more. Hopefully more. So yeah, it's, but it's like, he totally does it to save himself. So there wasn't really a noble cause. No. <laughs> Nothing noble about it. But it becomes it, his duality. Yes. There's Sean and then there's Sean, psychic detective. Psychic detective of the of the Santa SBPD. Barbara. SBPD. Yeah. Santa Barbara Police I can Department. I can say letters. I'm super good at saying sometimes letters. Sometimes I say them in order properly. A, B, C. D, E, F, G. There we got it. So... Now we have Gus. Now Gus has just been best friend, pharmaceutical sales rep. Uh -huh. This is just who Gus is. This is his normal. This is Gus, right? Yes. And yet now we know that in the episodes up to this, we've talked about how his character has grown and he stepped into that full row as now I'm Gus, pharmaceutical sales rep slash private detective partner. Yes. Right? And that's who he's become. And in fact, in this uh, episode, we see him doing some very good detective work alongside. And yeah, uh, he actually solves quite a few clues in this one. Yep. And they work quite well together. And then he's given an alter ego as well. Yes. Magic head. Which he initially very, very much rejects. He slaps <laughs> Sean's hands away. Um. Both times he tries to put his hands on Gus's magic head. You know, he's very reluctant about magic head throughout. There's, the, you know, but he always, always, always will come back and accept his role as magic head. Yeah. It's, and, and that's so beautiful about who Gus is. And I think so. This is beautiful to me in character development terms, because to me, it's now him accepting if plain basic just hyper observant make it through a thousand and ten plus infinity jobs sean mm -hmm. is is the basic and gus pharmaceutical salesman slash private detective partner is the basic there and then you have psychic detective sean as the alter ego now you have magic head as the alter ego so now that i feel like it ups the ante where now he's psychic detective partner yes where he's like full into the crazy as well now he's always been kind of full into the crazy but that's by nature of his relationship with sean, with sean. that's just their friendship you know but it's like now he's got his crazy part yeah because you see at the end of the episode yeah when sean is calling magic head and gets the crowd to start chanting magic head and and Gus goes out there and you can see the look of like, oh, my reluctance, reluctance and aggravation. There's so much on um, Dulé Hill's well, face. Well, George Takei is standing right there. And uh, but 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 he he accepts it and 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 moves into this role as magic head to to help solve the crime. Yeah. And Sean really does want to include him in giving him that glory, like where they're sharing the glory of that final reveal. Yes. Sean can always be counted on to, to give Gus credit, and he can always be counted on to throw Gus under the bus. It's true. But he will always pull Gus right out from underneath that bus <laughs> right before it hits, too. And Gus learns how to do the same. Yeah. 
I mean, that's just, that's just their friendship, which is great. And so we really see that. And then just as a little aside, we get that other little bit of secret identity with that whole play of them being George Takei's assistants. Yes. You know, and I think it's hilarious that Sean introduces Gus as Gus. And he's like a really like, yeah, because because he introduces like, now now is the time you're supposed to use a nickname. I mean, and he introduces himself as Tom, so it's like he's not even the real guy. But poor Gus is like introduced to his hero, and he's never going to be able to yeah to change that. Uh, and so we get this, we get a lot of plays on identity in this, as even like with the joke between. George Takei's name, I feel like, is a little nod. One, it's a nod to the fact that people never know how to pronounce it. But two, it is kind of a little play to the whole, what is the identity of a person? Oh, yeah. And I think that's just kind of fun. So I love how they brought in the identities because that's so such an integral part of any great comic book story. So true. Fun fact. You want to know what all the references are from this episode? Please enlighten me. I definitely do not have all of the references from this episode. Well, as we continue, it's going to get harder and harder because every episode they're going to begin to pack so many more. But I have picked out some good ones. Okay. So I'm going to start with the green spirit movie failing because of the big nipples on the outside oh, of the costume. The marshmallow sized. Yeah. Yes. Um, that is definitely a reference to Batman. Absolutely. And Batman's costume. Well, I think it's actually a reference to probably the Val Kilmer and the George Clooney. And the George versions, Clooney. Because both of those had controversial bat suits going on. But especially the one with Clooney, because then they had Robin, who had the same issue with his suit. Yeah. My kids my kids watched like the 1980s Michael Keaton one. Yeah. And they were like, how come his how come his head can't rotate with his costume on? I thought that was I never noticed that as a child, but my kids were like, what? But Michael Keaton, I think, has even commented that? on the difficulty of that. Yeah. And then there's just so many Batman references. So many. So Dent would be named after Harvey Dent, who yeah. is Two-Face in Batman. Mm-hmm. Malone Brayfogle, his first and last name are going to be a reference to Batman. So there's Matches Malone, who's a character in Batman comics. He's a villain. There is Brayfogle, which is Norm Brayfogle, who was one of the most prolific illustrators for the Batman comics. That's a cool reference. That's a very cool reference. Talia. Yeah is also a reference to a Batman character. She is Talia Alguru. Alguru, I think, yeah. Alguru. Something like that. But I think she also, uh, in pop culture, also is in Green Arrow fandom as well. Oh. Yeah. But she also is a villain in the Batman comics. The most obvious one here we've got, George Takei. Takei? Takei. I know all of my Star Trek references. <laughs> it's because you know he likes it better that way, right? <laughs> yeah, and he does like the Michigan blueberries. Well, he can taste the difference. Obviously. I think not just not just him playing himself, and but it would be a really strong reference to the fact that Star Trek has a huge presence at Comic-Cons. There's always Star Trek panels where 
so many of their stars come and participate in these comic cons. Right. And I think they were probably one of those TV shows that were, I'm guessing, I'm speculating here, but they were probably one of those TV shows that were one of the first to kind of make those appearances at Comic-Con when it was still like comic books and all those things. Star Trek would have kind of paved the way into that new frontier. Yes. So to speak. they, did they boldly go there? <laughs> I think they did. Uh, you know, to bring these shows into that Comic-Con world. And so they have a great history and fan base. And th- those are a lot of the costumes that show up at Comic-Con as well. Yeah. And then Paristone. Tim, I don't know if it's an official reference to Paramount and Touchstone Pictures. But that's what it sounds like to me. So... Some other references that we have here, we have Urkel. Right, Jaleel White's character. Yes, so we've got a little six degrees of psych. Jaleel White played a character called Urkel, but Jaleel White shows up in a later episode of Psych. Right, as Actually, part, two. part of Black Capella. Well, what will become Black Capella. Yes. He also references Jan Brady and then Tina Yeathers. Mm-hmm. Another six degrees of sight. All right. Because Tina Yeathers plays Justine Bateman's younger sister on Flamely Ties. And Justine Bateman. And Ju- Justine Bateman plays Carlton's ex wife. The one who never knew he actually wanted kids. Yes. Also, Tina Yeathers plays sister to APK, daughter to MBB, who we know from our last episode are great heroes of both Sean and Gus. That's so true. Good catch there, Susie. So, I mean, obviously there are so many more references in here because there's so many comic book characters that show up. There's so many phantoms and there's the Green Green Lantern and the Green Hornet and... The Green Arrow. The Green Arrow. Yeah. There, there's so many references. There's like references on top of references in this episode. But some those were some of the ones that I thought were were really fun. Those are really fun. Thanks for sharing. Six degrees of psychness. One of the things I want to talk about in this episode is the amount of very subtle flirting between Sean and Juliet. Yes, this is actually some growth in their relationship. Yes, and some of the flirting is very subtle. Some of the flirting is outright not so subtle. Yeah, he's he's not one to shy away. Oh gosh, no. Yeah. So tell me what you noticed first. I mean, even from the from the very the get-go, like the first scene with the two of them, he calls her at her desk. She doesn't recognize the voice, but she knows that whoever is on the phone is kind of like messing with her. Yeah. And when she realizes it's Sean, she doesn't immediately put a stop to it. And then that's what I'm like. I'm like, if somebody is messing with me, I'm, I'm not interested in being pestered or flirted with or... Like I'm, I'm really good to just immediately put a stop to it. I think Juliet would do the same thing, right? Because at this point, she's she's being left where now she has to handle some things on her own. Yes, because Lassie is off with Chief Vic. Yes, and the so, non-lethal weapons, you know, and so she's gonna have to have, she's having her her, her moment where she needs to kind of show, yeah, I know what I'm doing, and so it would seem like a logical thing for her to be like, you know, I don't have time for. I this. don't have time for nonsense right now. But I also think that she's assertive enough to do that if if she didn't have those responsibilities in this moment, that she would be like, mm, no. Right, because we see in later episodes, she definitely has that ability. 
Oh, yeah. So it is interesting that she kind of engages this. She does a little bit. Yeah. And then and then she realizes that maybe he can help her on something that she can't really start working on yet. Right. So she goes to ask him for help. And his immediate response is something along the lines of, this horse doesn't look anything like my little pony. Sassiness, his rabbit trail. She doesn't, like she starts out focused and going, no, the writing. But then she comes back to, but that, that's a dog. Right. It's a doggy. I draw when I get anxious. And you can even hear instead of redirecting him to the case content. Yes. Yeah. So you can kind of see there's that little bit of engagement. Once again, he's he's goofing off and and there's a bit of banter, but she's not shutting it down yet. Like it's not necessarily overt flirting. There's like a level of familiarity that she's she's opening up to. Because up till this point, like she's gotten used to him being there. But, you know, she often references and goes through Lassie. Like, is he always like this? Or should Mm -hmm. we call the psychic, you know? Should we call that psychic guy? Right. So it's been like that. And she actually trusts him. Okay, he knows what he's doing. But it's always been at a more professional-like level. Or at least recognizing his skills in a professional capacity, even if it's not professional behavior. Yes. And that little bit of banter between them. It really kind of shows a new comfort level for the two of them that they're at a place where they feel comfortable enough that they can that they can banter, that they can be a little bit, not quite outright sarcastic, but maybe sassy with each other. You know, you see it playing even in her eyes and stuff. There's a part of her that almost seems like she's enjoying this process. Yes. As much as her words are saying, you know, she doesn't. And, as, and in truth, some of the things he says are things that she's like, come on. But- there's still, she's looking at the underlying thing because they're starting to get more of a familiarity. And it's so we're seeing that growth and change in their story arc together. Once it, once again, we've seen so many times, even in this first half of season one, so many times she trusts his judgment. So once again, we're seeing him trust his judgment. We're seeing her, not necessarily respect for the way that he does things, but respect for the way that he's able to get things done. Right. She does she doesn't necessarily appreciate the way that he does things, but she appreciates the results that he gets. Yes. And so at the end, we see he's like, Well, consider me hired. And we see Juliet going, Um, well, you're not you're not hired. If something happens, I'll I'll make sure that you get put on the case. But, you know, kind of right now, this is just a favor thing. And Sean, I would say that he jumps on board, but he tries to negotiate first with him maybe we can work out something i could sketch and maybe need a model yeah he he go he's he's full on he goes all the way there and even but even the way like her coy look when she looks back at him she responds to the content of what he's saying but that familiarity and the way their relationship is changing and starting to grow she does turn back and give that look that's kind of like i can take this as a joke and i can kind of give it as a joke Exactly. Now, I think that there, if we I were think, being speculative, I like, think if she thought he was being serious in that moment, her look would not have been coy. Right. And I think all. if if she had said yes, he would have been like, absolutely, let's do it. Yes. But if he said yes, she would be like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She would so they're, be like, in that, they're um, those places where they're not quite at the same place. Yeah. But they are kind of edging a little closer, at least in trust and in leaning in towards friendship a little bit. 
right? So she's finishing up with Sean. They're getting the professional stuff done now mm-hmm. because they've done that whole dance and negotiation kind of thing. And and now she's got the inf- she's got new information from him. And so now she's continuing with the professional stuff with Sean. Gets that all done and sorted. So she's on her way. Mm-hmm. But she's the one who turns around and initiates with Gus. Yes. How is the convention? Right? And it reveals this side of her that she's got this, you know, fun side that likes these, you know, things that Sean has just been making fun of. It looks, I mean, it really just looks like Sean's a little bit jealous of this moment that Juliet and Gus are having. He really does. He like tries to step back in and get professional to focus back on the yeah, case. let's get back on the case. Which is never what Sean does well, unless and, he's not getting the attention. Exactly. And you see like this little, this little briefest of expressions on her face where she almost does like not a full frown, but just like a, a, a you know? It's like his jealousy just ruined that little exchange of banter they had because- Yeah, where she, she, it almost looks like a oops on her face. Like, oh, we were having such a moment and now you just, now, oh yeah. Yeah. Because now she's being judged. Yeah. And here's the thing is he can't even figure out how to judge her because, you know, she's something like Tina Yothers. No, he can't- Jan Brady. And there's no parallel for this. Yeah. This is so outside of his frame of reference. And here we see her shut it down Without even speaking a word. Right. Like, he know he knows this is over. The coy is gone. The, yeah. She's not, like, letting that the, familiarity the, yeah. go. She's doing that shutdown that we said she could have done before that she didn't that do. That she chose not to. she's yeah. doing now. And now immediately you see it. She goes She goes with that little oops face. And then, and then we see the shutdown where she's not responding. She's not engaging to his banter with the Tina Yothers. And- yeah. Yeah, I think it's really nice, like um, – because she's so unabashedly open yes. about the things that she loves. And Gus often is, but he's so used to being made fun of for Sean. It's nice that now we're seeing a little bit of growth in their friendship too, because they have someone they can talk to. Like all of a sudden, we don't need to be ashamed. We outnumber the one making yes. fun of us. And so we get a new dynamic that's happening in this new familiarity. And I think that's really sweet too. I love that. So there's a lot of growth that's happening in these subtle ways, in these little moments that we see in this episode. Yeah. So the last scene that we see with Sean and Juliet is at the hospital. Yeah. They're looking through the nursery window. Mm -hmm. um, And Sean is regaling them with the story of how he did all of these amazing things. Oh, and Jules, she arrested them all. And then they chanted my name and hoisted me on their shoulders. And and once again, we see here she doesn't engage. She doesn't engage him at all. It's not until Lassiter joins the conversation where her banter picks back up, and she banter's a little bit with Lassiter, right? Because then he finishes his story. Uh, Sean finishes his story of regaling, and like, oh, I'm so awesome. I'm so awesome. Oh, but what you did was kind of cool too. Yeah, I guess. So he's, he's like belittling okay. Carlton, and she actually joins in on making fun of Carlton, but. Totally ignoring everything Sean yes, said. Yes, totally ignoring everything before that. So she that. has that segue. Yes. So you know she's clued in, but she's ignoring him completely, and they're not having an exchange at all in this bit. Uh, but I just – I love I love this – the dynamic that we see in this yeah. episode between those characters. I don't know. The fact that she's willing to willing to engage in banter and then willing to shut it down. Yeah. We see a lot of strength in her. Right. And, and a little bit of, you know, just kind of like they're not really flirting, but they're kind of dancing around flirting maybe. Yeah. Well, 
she's not really flirting, but she's kind of dancing around flirting. And he's definitely outright flirting. Maybe, maybe she would be willing to flirt in the future. But it is nice to see that they're getting that comfort level with each other. Yes. Which gives us hope for the flirting in the future. Hey, Susie. Hey, Lizzie. So I want to talk to you about Comic-Con. <gasps> I've never been to Comic-Con. Right? Comic-Cons are kind of this incredible phenomenon of their own. Yes. Right? And this is the setting for our episode this week. So I wanted to dive in a little more deeply to that for our fun fact. Yes. So did you know Comic-Cons are on every continent in the world? Except Antarctica, of course. Did they not want to hang out with the polar bears and penguins? Well, you know, you would think that maybe they would have one because the penguins would be there because, you know, Penguin is Batman's rival. But maybe he's keeping that as his secret base and he doesn't want people there because they might expose him. I don't know. Okay. I can see the logic. I can see the logic. But I do It's hope- a little psychological. It is. But I do hope that the penguins are having fun. <laughs> so anyway, so the largest... Comic-Con in the world is San Diego Comic-Con. Uh-huh. It's the first one to pop up if you Google Comic-Con. There are many other huge Comic-Cons, but San Diego is the most known. It is the largest, and it was one of the first, right? It was started in 1970. A uh, small handful of guys who were involved in the comics industry really just wanted to f- have a gathering where everybody would be able to come and enjoy all these things. That first year, there were only 60 to 75 in attendance. The second event, it immediately jumped up to 300. And by their fifth event, which was only three years later, because at that time they did more events than one per year, they hit 1,000 people within three years. Oh, wow. That's pretty uh, exponential growth there. I know. And now by 2006, now 2006 was the year that Sean and Gus attended Santa Barbara Con. Okay. While they were in Santa Barbara at that con – there were 123,000 gathered in San Diego. 123,000. That's a crowd. So the largest ever in San Diego was in 2015, and that was 165,000 people that attended that Comic-Con. Now, after that, they capped the number at 130,000 just simply because of building capacity. They mm-hmm. were having trouble with all of the – like restrictions for the buildings. So they had the huge convention center, but in addition, they utilize spaces from all of the neighboring hotels. So they're using multiple buildings and multiple spaces, and they keep that number at 130,000. So it's a huge event every year. Now, of course, COVID changed that. So they had to cancel a year. And it'll be interesting to see how they play that out for future events, because they're having to make some adaptations because of now we're living in a a world Mm -hmm. with COVID. But it is this huge event that everybody looks forward to. I reached out to some friends of mine who have been to some of the major cons. And they said one of their favorite things about going to the con is seeing how inclusive it is. Because there'll be people there who go there for the comics. People who go there for TV shows. People who go there just simply because they love cosplaying and dressing up and making costumes. People who go there to simply observe all the people in from the fandoms because they enjoy the spectacle of their favorite characters. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just a broad range of people and they love how everybody is going there to enjoy. It creates a a sense of community. I love that. And so, which we know being a part of hashtag psych family. Yes. Right. It's a great community. Now, one of the things I know, like even just from looking online, I love to look at the costumes every year. Anime has a huge presence at Comic-Con. 
Like I said, it's not just comic books anymore. And anime actually takes up 30% of the panels. Oh, wow. And then comic books take up 30% of the panels. And then all the other pop fandoms take up all of the others. So it has a very strong home in these conventions. In fact, there are some conventions that are dedicated solely to anime, but they have a strong uh, base even in San Diego Comic-Con. If people want to know more about it, there is on Sirius XM uh, a podcast. It's a six-part mini-series about the birth and evolution of San Diego Comic-Con. It's told by over 50 of the original contributors. It's called uh, Comic-Con Begins, the origin stories of San Diego Comic-Con and the rise of modern fandom. It has a lot of celebrity interviews. Uh, awesome. From people in that kind of pop culture world that we would know. Felicia Day, who's famous. Uh, oh, I know her. Right. She was an actress on a Eureka. Uh-huh. But she also had her own show that she created called The Guild, which was about her gaming experience because she's an avid gamer. She's a producer. She's a writer. She's an all-around creative type. Kevin Smith, famous 90s indie uh-huh. film artist. I know who he is, too. He's a huge comic book fan. He actually has his own comic book store, Jay and Silent Bob's comic book shop. Oh, that's so cool. With that, he has his own podcast about these things that also then launched into a, a TV show called Comic Book Men. Neil Gaiman, who wrote one of those first most impactful graphic novels called Sandman. Bruce Campbell, who's been in a lot of action movies of the cult classic variety. Yes. So, and he has a role on Psych as well. Yes, he does. Because... He's one of those ones that uh, Steve Franks is a fanboy of, right? And he does show up on Psych. It's the six degrees of Psych right here again in my fun fact. Yes. So people can uh, look that up if if they're interested in more. Now, I did want to point out one more to bring it back to Psych, since we mentioned six degrees of Psych. Psych, the TV show in our world, had its first appearance at Comic-Con in 2009. And Steve Franks has a quote about his experience there. You know, they were a small fledgling show on a small fledgling cable network, you know, just getting away with what they could, mm-hmm. having fun while they were doing it and didn't really know what to expect. So Steve Franks says this quote, I was terrified because I really didn't think many people were going to show up. And I was kind of hoping there was going to be something great before us and that people would stay in the room. (laughs) They told us they were going to put us in the 4,200 seat auditorium. I'm like, this is going to be the most embarrassing day of my life. There are only going to be about 26 people there. Oh, Steve, you didn't know. I know, right? He says, usually I'm way overconfident about everything. We got there, we went on stage, we poked our heads out before we went on stage, and the place was full, and they were all crazy psych fans. I turned to our other producers and James and said, oh my God, this is one of the greatest days of our lives. We have to remember this. It's so cool because we shoot up in Canada where the show doesn't air. It was magical and awesome, and it was life-affirming. You work so hard to put these shows together, and this is why. And I thought that's so beautiful because at the time, they had no idea that people were watching. But we as fans know how much we love it. Well, I think I think they might have known that people were watching, but I don't I don't maybe they didn't know how big of fans exactly we are right? of this show. And that we love it so much. And yet now looking back, I'm sure they realize that because they, how many movies they've made and they continue to say they'll make more, you know, as long as they can. 
because of that psych family, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's really beautiful that he he was able to, that it was the psych fans that were able to really uh, change that whole experience for him that day. And so 2009, Psych's first appearance at Comic-Con, and aren't we glad? So one of the things that I see in this episode that I think is really interesting are all of the scenes with Carlton Chief Fick. Yes. We get to see a whole new side of both of these characters that we've really not seen much in previous episodes. And so like it starts in the in the car they're on their way to the non-lethal weapon seminar. Carlton has to hate that seminar. Oh, surely. Surely he is like, what do you, what even is the point? To me it kind of looks like they're in the car. Carlton is made just so uncomfortable by the by the silence between them. And so he's just kind of like talking for noise to be there. And it's just coming out. It's just this not good verbal vomit. Yeah. It's like start, like, like insert shovel here, start digging. Yeah. <laughs> Until she says, okay, honey. And he's like, uh, what? Like we see in these, in this, in this little bit here, Carlton, it's just, it's so bad. Bless his heart. He's trying so hard to engage in conversation with her and doing just an utterly horrible job. But then he realizes that she's not heard a single word that he says. Yeah. And so she's like, did you say something? And he says, no. And so like, I read that as him being like, you ignored me and now I'm not going to talk to you anymore. <laughs> you know, and it, it could also be like, he might be a little grateful that she maybe didn't hear all of the verbal vomit yeah. that just came out. I feel out. like there has to be some awareness of the awkwardness and how deep that shovel was going. Surely. And into I, that conversation. And I would say that there is because he's like stumbling over his words with long pauses. and Well, it's almost like he's trying to ingratiate himself. He's obviously uncomfortable with chit Oh, he's totally schmarmy, schmarmy in this. Totally yes. uncomfortable with the chit-chat. But he is, like, trying to say things that would make him look really good. Yes. Unfortunately, but some things make him look they, really bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's probably a good thing that she missed some of the stuff he said. Once it's he realizes that it wasn't him she was listening to, mm-hmm. yeah, he shut down pretty quickly. Yes. So, and then the, the next scene we see, once again... Carlton tries to in, engage in conversation with her about. Well, now he's got some ideas. He's yeah. like, okay, maybe I could about present the ideas that can be things done that he's probably been thinking about. In the Santa Barbara Police Department. And um, and she immediately interrupts Carlton. And he doesn't realize that she's like completely changed the subject. So he just keeps barreling on. Well, I mean, and making it so much worse. Yeah. Like, well, because he's feeling like she's not listening to him. Yeah. This time, not because she's talking to somebody else, but I mean, he's got something to say and it, it, it would be worthwhile. It's, it's a value, this thing that he's probably thought about many times, you know? Yeah. And I think at this point, he feels like she's just interrupting, like that she doesn't want to talk about this topic only for her to. F- to finally clue in that he's not understanding why she's interrupting. And and she's like, Carlton, my water broke. And, 
uh, and we see this that this shift again in this moment but the part that i really really like is when we get when they get to the hospital mm -hmm. and um and carlton is is he's so intimidated to be in the room obviously he's very uncomfortable which makes sense yes it does and we see Chief Vic here in this vulnerable position, which is not something we've seen from her before. Like right. she takes care of business. Yeah. And so we don't see her in this position where she feels vulnerable. You can hear it, like you can hear it only in one word and, um, and it's played so perfectly. You hear her say, I always had a coach. And like the whole rest of the sentence mm -hmm. is, is said in that Chief Vic voice. And then you hear coach and it's just like, you gotta help me. And this is just seeing the the beauty of her having this intimate moment with somebody that she wouldn't ever have the opportunity to have it at like a real uh, authentic moment like that with. Right. Well, and we see him there in that moment. Here's a real chance for him to ingratiate himself by helping, but he's not thinking in those terms, which is good which because is good. he's responding just naturally. But by responding naturally, he does actually ingratiate himself, you know, despite all of the errors that he makes just yes. by nature of being Carlton. Well, and even even the the wonderful the wonderfully ridiculous errors that he makes in the room with her. Yeah. When the nurse asks, Can you can you help motivate her? And right. he turns into like cop Carlton and well, I think he latched yeah. onto that word coach, you know, and he, he's yeah. probably like thinking back to like that high school gym coach who was like, climb that rope, climb that rope. Like, yeah. And I was thinking the same thing, like when the police academy, yeah. like if you're motivating somebody, you're going to like yell at him. And then, and then he realizes, okay, that's really bad. And so he goes and he tries to like caress her head. Yeah. Cause that's the opposite. Cause that's Cause the opposite. It's going to be one or the other. Yeah. Cause this is kind of the world that Carlton lives in. And so we see, we see again where uh, she's like, I don't need that either. Yeah. And, and, and you see this desperation come out of him of like, I'm trying so hard. I'm trying in this moment to find how right. I can help fill this need. And he just like in sheer exasperation goes, I don't know what you want. I don't know what any woman wants. Right. And, uh, and, and so getting to see like this, this really vulnerable side of both of them, I really, really enjoyed. But also getting to to see Chief Vic and how much she actually does balance, like this dance that she does right. every single day that we don't see because we only see her at work. Right. We don't see that she's balancing work and being the chief of police, being a wife, getting ready to be a mom. And here we see how Carlton is kind of processing his world. He, he's he's almost like an island yeah and he doesn't know he doesn't know how to get off of his island to to the next one over to be with other people right and i think that's what's so great about this particular scenario uh is because of that very thing because chief vic is so you, you know she's a woman in charge and she has to make decisions all the time mm -hmm. and she's having to give you know make decisions and give orders and do things and you know she's she's got a person at home her husband that she's talking with and you know she's got 
superiors and she's got subordinates and, you know, there's a lot going on and now she's going to have this baby and, you know, she's used to, I guess, discharging energy, <laughs> you know, yes. so to speak. Whereas Carlton, you know, he's, he's wounded and fresh out of this marriage that he's now processing through the fact that it's over. And so he's really living this internally focused world in, in this internally focused yeah. world. And I think it's interesting because usually those are aspects we wouldn't be able to see about these characters mm -hmm. if they weren't presented this way without them seeing them seeming unnatural. How do I explain this? Because like, for example, with Carlton, he's not going to be vulnerable and talk about when he's holding the baby, you know, my wife didn't think I wanted kids. That's when I really did. And that's why we, part of why we broke up, you mm -hmm. know? Uh, to anybody because he's so tough and he's not going to be vulnerable to people. If he walked up into the precinct and said anything like that, that would be so out of character, so out of character. And we'd be like, wait, who is that? Where's Carlton? Yeah. Right. So only what so, were the writers smoking this week? Right. <laughs> but it's only because of this particular circumstance. Yes. That we're able to see this part of him. And so I thought it was brilliant that the, the, the way that the writers put the scenario together so that we can see that aspect of him, the, all these things that he's been internalizing and processing through that would remain hidden on the inside, we get to experience and see as an audience and see that he's going through uh, because of this so such, a, such an absurd scenario. scenario. And it's the same with Vic. We get to find out so much more about her and see more of all of these things that she has to juggle mm -hmm. that we wouldn't normally see, even though we know that she's married and we know that you know, obviously we know she's going to have a baby, but she's so with it. And she's such a woman who kind of knows what knows, knows what she's capable of. Yes. Right. She's a, a competent woman. It's why she's in the position she's in. It would be so out of character for her to yeah, be like, to come in and be like, I'm having to juggle this and that. And I don't, I don't know how to express what the coach did. I just know I needed a coach, you know, cause they told, you know, yeah, because that would be out of character. We're like, what do you mean? You don't know you, you're very well. And so because of the absurdity of this scenario though, we're able to have those aspects of them explained and portrayed to us without it being out of character. That's very true. And I think that's really cool. I also was really struck by the the look on Chief Vic's face while she's on the phone with her husband at the beginning. She's just got this look of just peace and contentment. Yeah. And and so when it gets back to that later scene where she's like, I just need a coach. And it's like, you, that makes so much sense when you take that facial expression that she has of peace and contentment. It's just... It's such a peaceful and then just a very slight smile. And 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 of course that's that's what she wants, you know, she wants somebody that makes her feel that way present with her in the the labor and delivery room. Right. And so it, like the the acting choice on that scene I think was absolutely brilliant as well. Yeah, I think it's really well played and it was a really smart decision the way that they paired the two of them. And because of the misunderstanding in communication, it allows us to see those aspects of them, but it also allows them to grow more in their relationship because mm -hmm. here we have they were they were actually like equals out, you know, as detectives out there, but then she got promoted to interim chief, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so now that's something that Carlton has had to deal with. And so he sometimes struggles now and he's still having to make that adjustment, which is why I think we even get that part in the car where he's like, no, just listen, just listen. Yeah. You know, where if it had always been another chief who had always been a superior, he might have never said anything at all. But, you know, he's trying to exert himself there a little bit because, you know, he's still figuring that part of it out. Yeah. Um, but he still does respect her as chief. Oh, I, I think so. I, 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 you know, even if he can't ex- express it in probably the best ways, you know, that's a good thing that they did hire, you know, a, a woman. woman. <laughs> but, um, but I do think he really does respect her and believe that she's good for the role. He just kind of wished it was him probably. Oh, yeah. So, um, but he's still figuring those things out. Uh and so we get to see that growth of the two of them together. And we see her appreciation of him and that vulnerable side of him as well. The fact that she's willing, even with all his crazy mistakes, to keep him in there with her, you know, yeah, because it's somebody that she can trust and she needs somebody there and he's there and that, you know, that says something. And it's a relationship that's interesting to see the way it develops and grows through the season. And that's that's also part of what I was thinking was how how beautiful was it that the the writers chose for these two characters to have that vulnerable moment together because it was it was unbelievably vulnerable for both of them. Chief Vic has just had a baby, yeah. and Carlton has just shared like part of why his life outside of work has unraveled so yeah. much. And I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant move to put, to pair those two together for this. So Susie, let's wrap up this episode. I mean, there's a lot of things I love about this episode because I do like the superhero comics and everything like that Uh so much. Now, one of the things is... I feel like this was a really solidly written episode. And so it's one that I really love because it it just all fits together so well and it flows really well. I just don't find it the most hilarious always. Yes. Doesn't always have as many of those punchy one-liners as some of the others, but I do think it was a really well-contained episode. And I do like that they highlighted this community that oftentimes gets forgotten. It's a little overlooked. Yeah. I think one of the things about it though is like, and and maybe it's, I like that they pointed this out where Sean's kind of making fun of it and he kind of falls to all the stereotypes of people who don't like these things Mm -hmm. believe about people who do. Yes. You know, oh, they just stuck behind a computer. You know, they, they don't have any social skills. All of these kind of stereotypes Sean kind of clings to. And I like that both Gus and Juliet throw him out of balance with that a little because especially with as huge as like Marvel movies have gotten and the, and the DC television shows have gotten all kinds of people like these things. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's an interesting how he's kind of reverting to the stereotypes and it's kind of cringy at times, but I do like that. Then you have somebody like Gus and Juliet who represent something a little different. Yes. And I think that's and they, kind of and, nice. And they represent characters that Sean loves and respects. Right. I don't know that he loves Juliet yet. But, but he definitely respects her. But he definitely her. respects her. Yeah. As as people who are breaking his mold of what he thinks that's supposed to look like or does look like. Right. 
And so it's, it's an interesting episode for that reason. So I do want to ask you, what is your favorite quote from this episode? My favorite quote, and I use it, and this is one I think I do paraphrase, but not necessarily the words, but the inflection. <gasps> no, not you paraphrasing. Yes. That's my job inadvertently, of course. I know. I'm stealing it from you. I want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> so Carlton, when he's in the room with Chief Vic, yeah, and he's trying to encourage her and um, to motivate her. Yeah. And then he- Which he fails miserably. He fails so miserably. This is not boot camp, Carlton. And then he tries to comfort her by like rubbing her head really weird. Oh, so and it's creepy. Just so, it's so creepy. It's so bad. And he looks at her and he says, I don't know what you want. I don't know what any woman wants. And I love it. It makes me laugh every time. Yeah. And it's just a great line. It's great to quote one. How about you, Lizzie? The one that I kind of chuckle at the most, just because it's so Sean's nature, is when he is first standing up as the psychic in the con. Mm -hmm. And he's looking for the two lads, right? Yes. And so he's like, you know, uh, I'm getting an R, I'm getting a D, or an R and a D, you know? And he says, yes, a D and an R and a D and an R, a Rob and a Don. And of course, the two lads raise their hands and they're like, that's us. And he says, He's shaking his head and he's like, an, an actual Rob and Don together. Sometimes I scare myself. Like, I just love when he's like, he's so in his own act where he's believing himself so much and he just plays it up. And it's like, you always see these looks out of Gus. That's yeah. Like, I know Gus the truth. Is like, and you know you the truth. You literally came here looking for Rob and Don. And you know you're not a psychic. <laughs> but he always plays it off so well where he's just like, oh, like, oh, sometimes I scare myself. I love those moments. Sometimes I scare myself. I'm that good. Me, Lizzie, of course. Of course. Of course. Let's cut that part. <laughs> Keeping it. This has been so psychological. You've heard it both ways. I hear that. 